Welcome to our study on exploring end time events. Now, before we continue on our journey of the prophetic timeline, I want to take a moment to set the scene for our next event, which is going to be the tribulational period. Now, in order to set that scene, what we're going to be doing today is talking about prophecies that have been fulfilled and ones that are yet to be fulfilled. So why is this important? Well, by foretelling of persons and places and events hundreds of years before their occurrence, the Bible demonstrates a knowledge of the future that is too specific to be labeled a good guess. By giving examples of fulfilled prophecy, the scriptures give a strong testimony of their own inspiration. Now, the acid test of identifying a prophet of God is recorded by Moses in Deuteronomy 18, verses 21 to 22. Let's look over and read that. It says, And if you say in your heart, How shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously, and you shall not be afraid of him. So according to this Bible passage and others, God's prophets, as distinct from Satan's spokesmen, are 100% accurate in their predictions. Ladies, there is no room for error. Well, there is an acronym that I like to use when it comes to proving that scriptures are the true inspired word of God. And that is maps. Now the M in maps stands for manuscripts. There is more manuscripts given for the word of God than any other literature. The A stands for archaeology. And we all know that there is a lot of archaeological proof out there that proves the events that took place in scripture. And then what we're going to be talking about today is the P in maps, which is prophecy, and the S, which is the statistical probability that these prophecies could all be fulfilled. Now, an example of this would be the prophecy of King Cyrus. Let's look over to Isaiah chapter 44, and let's look at verse 28. It says, Who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd? And he shall perform all my pleasures, saying to Jerusalem, You shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. Well, remember that the prophet Isaiah was writing this about 700 B.C. And he predicts that Cyrus, by name, as the king, who will say to Jerusalem that it shall be built, and that the temple foundation shall be laid. Now remember, at the time of the writing of Isaiah, the city of Jerusalem was fully built, and the entire temple was standing. And it was not until more than 100 years later would the city temple be destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. So, after Jerusalem was taken by the Babylonians, it was conquered by the Persians, in about 539 B.C. Shortly after that, a Persian king named Cyrus gave the decree to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Now this was around 160 years after the prophecy of Isaiah. So Isaiah predicted 
that a man named Cyrus, who would not be born for about a hundred years, would give the command to rebuild the temple, which was still standing in Isaiah's day, and would not be destroyed for more than a hundred years later. This prophecy is truly amazing, ladies, but it is not isolated. There are, in fact, literally hundreds of prophecies which predict future events and prophecies that have been already fulfilled. Now, just to name a few, we can't go through all of them or we would be here all night. But in Micah 5.2, they prophesied that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Well, we see this fulfilled in Matthew, the second chapter, verse 1, and in Luke chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. A, also another prophecy was that the kings shall bring him gifts and they will fall down before him as we see in Psalm 72 and it was fulfilled in Matthew chapter 2 verses 1 through 11. Now some 400 years before crucifixion was invented both Israel's king David and the prophet Zechariah described the Messiah's death in words that perfectly depict that mode of execution and further they said that the body would be pierced and that none of the bones would be broken contrary to customary procedures in cases of crucifixion we see this in Psalms 22 as well as Zechariah 12 verses 10 again we see historians and the New Testament writers confirm the fulfillment Jesus of Nazareth died on a Roman cross and his extraordinarily quick death eliminated the need for the usual breaking of the bones. They used a spear to thrust into his side to verify that he was indeed dead. And we see this in John 19 and John 20. Now in the 5th century BC there was a prophet named Zechariah who declared that the Messiah would be betrayed for the piece of a slave. Well, in Jewish law, that was 30 pieces of silver. And also, that this money would be used to buy a, a burial ground for Jerusalem's poor foreigners. This prophecy was made by Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 through 13. Well, Bible writers and secular historians both record 30 pieces of silver as the sum paid to Judas Iscariot for betraying Jesus and they indicate that the money went to purchase a potter's field just as predicted for the burial of poor aliens and we see this in Matthew 27 verses 3 through 10 and then another prophecy was that the prophet Moses foretold with some additions by Jeremiah and Jesus that the ancient Jewish nation would be conquered twice and that the people would be carried off as slaves each time well we see the first by the Babylonians right for a period of 70 years and then by a fourth world kingdom which we know as Rome the second conqueror Moses said would take the Jews captive to Egypt in ships selling them and giving them away as slaves to all parts of the world well, ladies, both of these predictions were fulfilled to the letter. The first in 607 B.C. 
and the second in 70 AD. God's spokesman said further that the Jews would remain scattered throughout the entire world for many generations, but without becoming assimilated by the peoples or other nations, and that the Jews would one day return to the land of Palestine to reestablish for a second time their nation. We see this in Deuteronomy 29, Isaiah 11, Jeremiah 25, Hosea 3, and Luke 21. Now remember, Israel became a nation in 1948, right? Well, ladies, the statistical probability that any or all of the Bible's very specific detailed prophecies could have been fulfilled through chance, good guessing, or just a coincidence is absolutely absurd in light of the evidence. God has given sufficient evidence of his existence and of the divine inspiration of the scriptures by means of fulfilled prophecy. Josh McDowell, one of the leading apologists who wrote Evidence That Demands a Verdict, has quoted Professor Peter Stoner regarding statistical probability. Now, Professor Stoner was in the 1800s and to the 1900s, and he was chairman of the departments of mathematics and astronomy at Pasadena City College until 1953. Well, and then uh, chairman of the science division of Westmont College from 53 to 57. Now, Stoner, he calculated the probability of one man fulfilling only a handful of over 300 messianic prophecies. And in 1944, he published his research results in the Science Speaks, Scientific Proof of the Accuracy of Prophecy and the Bible, which has been given the stamp of approval by the American Scientific Affiliation. Well, Stoner, he concluded that the probability of one person fulfilling just eight of these specific prophecies was one chance in ten to the seventeenth power. That is like looking at one followed by seventeen zeros. Okay? This is equivalent to covering, ladies, the entire state of Texas with silver dollars two feet deep, marking one of them, mixing them all up, and having a blindfolded person select that one marked coin at random the very first time. Now, how about one person fulfilling just 48 of the over 300 prophecies? Well, Stoner calculated these odds at one chance in 10 to the 157th power. Can you imagine? If you thought the other one was impossible, this is way beyond statistical impossibility. So, we see through prophecy and the statistical probability of them being fulfilled proves the accuracy of the scriptures. So, if all of these prophecies have been fulfilled in great detail with no error, we know, ladies, that the prophecies predicted in the future will also be fulfilled in detail with no error. Ladies, when we look at prophecies, 
that have been fulfilled and yet to be fulfilled in the future, we automatically think of the book of Daniel. In specific, we are going to look at the time period when Daniel interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Now, the book of Daniel from chapter 2, verse 4, through chapter 7, verse 28, is written in Aramaic, the language spoken at Nebuchadnezzar's court. Now, Daniel wrote this section in Aramaic because it was a Gentile language. And at that part of this book, he's dealing with four great Gentile world powers. So, in the interpretation, Daniel now reveals what the image of Nebuchadnezzar's dream represents. You have the statue, remember, in his dream. And it represents four Gentile world powers. You have the golden head, which was Babylon. You have the silver chest and arms, which were Medo-Persia. And then you have the brass belly and thighs, which were Greece. And then look, you have the iron legs and iron and clay feet, which was Rome and the revived Roman Empire. Now, the reason for the two legs, remember, is depicted because Rome was divided, right? You had the Western Rome and you had Eastern Rome, which was Constantinople. So, the religious roots here in Babylon were sown at the Tower of Babel by Nimrod and his followers. And we have seen the prophecies of these empires ruling fulfilled. You remember in Daniel chapter 5 it talked about the Medes and Persians and how they entered Babylon and took over that city. Well, I want to skip from those and now I want to skip over to Daniel chapter 9 and look at verses 24 and 27. It says, Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for inequity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up visions and prophecy and to anoint the Most High. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the sixty-two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consumption which is determined is poured out on desolate. So here, ladies, we are talking about the 70 weeks of Daniel, right? Which covers the time period from the rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls to the millennium. The expression translated here, 70 weeks, is literally 70 sevens. So what are we talking about when we talk about the 70 weeks? 
This refers to seven years of sevens, or for example, 490 years. You are going to take the 70 times 7, and that equals 490 years. This is the beginning of the first period at the beginning of Jerusalem's walls in March 14, 445 B.C. Now, the 70 weeks are actually broken down into three periods. So what are these three periods within the 70 weeks? What happened during each period? Let's look at that. The first period is seven weeks or 49 years. So you take your seven times seven equals 49. From 445 to 396 BC, the walls of Jerusalem were to be rebuilt in troublous times. Now, the key elements during this time were the building of the streets and walls of Jerusalem, even in troublous times. So this literally ladies, took place as we see in Nehemiah chapter 2 through 6. Okay, then the second period is 62 weeks or 434 years. So you're going to be taking the 62 times 7 and that equals your 434. So this was from 396 B.C. to 32 A.D. where Messiah was to be crucified. Now at the end of the second period, the Messiah was crucified, right? It was we see in Matthew 27, Mark 15th, Luke 23rd, and John 19. Now, Sir Robert Anderson was a Scotland Yard detective as well as a brilliant British scholar and Bible student. And he took the Julian and Gregorian calendar and he reduced the first two periods into their exact number of days. Now, you remember the Gregorian calendar is what we use today. So, he did this by multiplying 483. And you remember this is the combined years of the first two periods. You had your 49 years and then you had the 434 years in the second period. And he multiplied this by 360. And this is the number of days in a biblical calendar, as pointed out in, in Genesis. Now, the total number of days in the first 69 weeks, or the 483 years, is 173,880 days. Well, Anderson then points out that if... One begins counting on March 14th, 445 B.C. And you take that and you go forward in history. These days would run out on April 6th, A.D. 32. It was on, ladies, this very day that Jesus made his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. So Daniel, when he was writing some five and one half centuries earlier correctly predicted the very day of Christ's presentation and rejection. Now, some of the numbering may be off because of the different calendars and the timing, but with some analysts actually applaud Sir Robert Anderson for his effort to put this through. It was not a small thing to tackle, and he did this in the 1800s. In the 70 weeks of Daniel... 
the first two periods, remember, covered 69 weeks. Now notice on our prophetic timeline here that there is a gap, right, between the 69th week and the last week. Well, we are living right now in the gap period. Now, as an illustration, I heard this described as a 70-minute basketball game. And I found it kind of fascinating, so I'm going to run it by you. You have a 70-minute basketball game, and for 69 minutes, the game has been played at a furious and continuous pace. Then, all of a sudden, the referee, for some reason, calls timeout when the clock in the red is showing one final minute to play. No one knows for sure when the action will start again. But at some point, the referee will step in and blow his whistle. And at that time, the teams will gather to play out that last minute. So you can tell that the players are sitting there in anticipation to play that final minute of the game. Well, ladies, it's the same idea that God has now stepped in and he stopped the clock of prophecy at Calvary. This divine timeout has been lasting some 20 centuries, but soon the Redeemer will blow his trumpet and the final week of action will be played out upon this earth. These will be exciting times, and this is what we are looking for right now. We are living in that gap theory. We're waiting for God to blow his trumpet to say, come home. Well, the third period, ladies, is one week or seven years. So again, you're going to take one times seven. And this time period is from the rapture to the millennium, where you see the ministry of the Antichrist and the return of the true Christ, the tribulational period. At the beginning of this period, the Antichrist will make his pact with Israel and will begin his terrible bloodbath. At the end of that last week and the entire 70-week period, the true Messiah will come and establish his perfect millennium. Well, Lady Scripture shows us how Nebuchadnezzar wanted to consolidate his empire through a common religion. This is the second of three great attempts of man to institute a one-world religion. The first occurred, remember, at the Tower of Babel, as we see in Genesis 11, and the last will take place in Jerusalem during the tribulational period, which we'll see in Revelation 13. Well, I have a few video clips that I would like to show you of things that are happening, ladies, in our lifetime that are going to show us that the time is really getting close. The first I'd like you to look at is a video regarding a one-world religion. Please listen to what they have to say. The Anglican bishops, priests, and faithful that until now have come to the Catholic Church were received individually. Now Benedict XVI has created a system so that Anglican parishes or entire dioceses can be received in the Catholic Church. Some 50 Anglican bishops have asked for their diocese to be welcomed in this way. The system requires the Anglican groups to accept the doctrine of the Catholic Church and the authority of the Pope. Yes, they will be Catholics. And that, uh, 
that will be clear because, uh, like uh, people who go through a uh, an RCIA or catechumenal process, they both ritually and and personally make a profession of faith, and uh, so that would, that's clear. The structure that will welcome Anglican newcomers is based on personal ordinariates, similar to military ordinariates or Catholic churches of Oriental rite. This form, the personal ordinariate, allows for something very much part of the local church. And as groups emerge who wish now to take advantage of this apostolic constitution wherever in the world, they can do so in a local way in consultation with the Holy See and with the conferences uh, in each place. The Holy See names the ordinary, which could be an Anglican priest or bishop received in the Catholic Church. Anglican bishops who are married cannot be ordinaries. Only celibate Anglican bishops or priests will be able to exercise this charge. Anglican priests who are married can continue in their ministry as clergy and pastors. With this new structure, Anglicans can come into full communion with the Catholic Church, still staying true to Anglican spiritual and liturgical patrimony, similar to Catholic Churches of Oriental Rite. Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, spiritual leader of the Anglican Church, gave his approval to the new project. The next step in the process is an apostolic constitution signed by the Pope that will put the ordinariates in effect. The decision gives way to partial unification while ecumenical dialogue for full communion with the Catholic Church continues. Now I'm not talking here about a one world religion that is going to happen right now. But isn't it interesting that the Pope of the Catholic Church has invited the Anglican Church to join them to take on the Catholic faith and that the Archbishop of the Anglican Church has accepted this offer. When you look at the ecumenical movement today that tries to unite Catholics and Christians as brothers and sisters with no spiritual difference, you can really see where the world is heading in regards to a one world religion, can't you? Well, I'd like you now to please listen to Dr. Ed Heinzen of the King is Coming Ministries as he further talks about globalization. Please listen. Globalism is a word that's on everybody's lips these days. Years ago, you almost never heard the term, but today it's a household word that we're a global community, a world village, that we all need to interconnect with one another. In fact, it's the reality of our times. Back in 1973, I was flying on a Delta jet. I pulled the Delta Sky magazine out of the rack, and uh, I was reading an article about the coming cashless society of the future, way back then. It said the day will come, the cash will almost be meaningless to people. Uh, everybody will use a credit card. Some kind of cashless, wireless transactions will be taking place. Money will be moved from one account to another automatically. This is going to be the wave of the future. Now, they made it sound like it was all going to happen in the next five or ten years. But in the next 30 or 40 years, it became a reality. We are living in a day and age unlike anything the world has ever seen before. And all of that change causes a lot of concern and a lot of questions. Because the Bible clearly predicts the fact that in the end times, a sinister figure, the Antichrist, will control a global economy. Now, uh, in commenting on this in my book, Antichrist Rising, I make this statement on page 105, and I want to read it to you right out of the book. There's certainly nothing morally wrong with computers or televisions or satellites or cashless financial transactions. 
but many Christians are concerned where all of this might lead. Uh, it appears that we are slowly becoming the victims of our own technological advancements. We're being swept down the quarter of time to an ominous date with destiny, steadily moving toward the inevitable globalization of our planet as national identities and interests continue to be submerged by the global worldview. Today, the attitude of the world is we're only concerned about what's good for the rest of the world. We really don't care about you. Where did all of this come from? Where is it leading? As we continue our study of amazing prophecies of the end times, I want to invite you to take your Bible. Go to the book of Revelation, the 13th chapter, and there you'll find this amazing prophecy about two world leaders in the end times. One that the Bible describes as the beast or the Antichrist, the other as the false prophet. And the scripture says this in Revelation 13, beginning in verse 16. If you're following along in your study Bible, it's page 2002 in the King is Coming study Bible. And he caused all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads that no one might buy or sell. That's the key phrase. Unless he had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. And then in verse 18 he says the number is 666. Now in that famous prediction, in that passage of Scripture, uh, a prediction that literally stirs our soul as we face the future. The Scripture is saying that in the time of the end, the Antichrist will impose some kind of an economic mark, an insignia. Uh, the Greek term in the original New Testament is karagma, which literally means a tattoo in the right hand or in the forehead. Now, years ago, people thought, well, who in their right mind would want a tattoo? Uh, on them, this must be something else. Today, and we realize... People love tattoos, and uh, another one isn't going to uh, shock anybody at this point in time, and especially if you need it in order to participate in the economic system of the future. Now, how we understand the details, uh, we have to look at in light of our own times. How it's ultimately fulfilled will be in light of the time of the fulfillment, but what it tells us is be prepared for the fact that the world economy, the global economy, is going to become a reality in the future. In order for the Antichrist to control a global economy, there must be a cashless society uh, where wireless transactions are part of the electronic age, uh, where we are moving into a period of time where the European Union is coalescing the nations of Europe uh, under the Treaty of Rome to ultimately form what all have called the new Europe of the future. Uh, a new Europe that involves cohesive markets to compete with the global economy uh, that tie together the interests uh, of the economic system of the entire world. And the center of it comes right out of Europe. The United States participates in it, as does China. In fact, what happens uh, in the stock market in China influences the market in Europe, which in turn influences the market in America. Now, that's the reality of our times. That doesn't mean the market is evil or bad, but what it's simply telling us is the technology already exists to produce a cashless society, to produce a global economy. That reality is now part of our reality. Now, when we look at Bible prophecies, like Daniel chapter 2, of that famous prophecy of the statue in 
King Nebuchadnezzar's dream where he saw the head of gold and the arms of silver, the belly of brass, the legs of iron, the feet of iron and clay. And the Lord tells Daniel, these are symbols of coming world empires, of Babylon, of Persia, of Greece, of Rome, and ultimately of a revived Roman Empire of the end times. You see, the Bible clearly predicts the rise of a world political leader, a false messiah, uh, who is aided and assisted uh, then by a false religious leader, the false prophet, and in time, they will not only influence the world religiously and politically, but economically as well. How else can you control the whole world these days? It takes more than just military might. It takes economic control. Ladies, everything is in its place for a cashless society. What might have been impossible in the past is now very possible. You can wire money from country to country with no hesitation. You can place an order with your credit card in another country and the credit card company converts that currency in a split second and the transaction is complete. You can do all of your banking and paying bills with a click of a mouse. With the economy the way it is, the world leaders actually have been talking about a one-world currency. And ladies, there is already a coin made called the United Future World Currency. I'd like you to please listen to Russian President Medvedev as he shows the new coin. Please listen. Now, concerning uh, currencies. This is the subject uh, which has become traditional and if um, a few months ago or let's say the first summit in Washington DC uh, basically it was not discussed at all. In, in Japan I raised the question, uh, I flagged this matter of uh, reserve currencies and I have to admit that uh, then the situation in economy was not much of concern to most participants. Everybody believed uh, that we can uh, make it, uh, but now uh, this is a constant subject for our discussions um, and we are discussing the questions of setting up a new uh, set or emergence of a new set of uh, uh, reserve currencies, including uh, possibility of emergence of ruble as such a currency, even if it's not reflected in our declarations, uh, and the question of supranational currency. Incidentally, I can uh, probably have good news to you. In my pocket, there is a supranational uh, coin, uh, which was a gift given to me. And uh, this is uh, one unit of uh, testing, uh, probing uh, uh, unit, unity and diversity it's referred to, and uh, it's referred to as uh, international currency, United Future World Currency. Here it is. You can already take a look at it and even touch it. Uh, what it tells us is, um, indeed, uh, this is a probe, uh, a gift, but people are thinking, and most probably, uh, one day uh, we'll see something uh, like that happening, you can use it, uh, hold it in your hand and uh, use it as a means of settlement. And this coin uh, was given a special standard of the rules of its circulation. This is a symbol of our unity, our desire to jointly uh, tackle such uh, problems. Uh, therefore, uh, this is it, uh, international uh, uh, currency. So as you can see, this was at a G8 meeting in 2009. Ladies, this is a physical coin that has President Medvedev 
said represents the unity in diversity. It is, as it says on the back of the coin, the future world currency. He said this is a constant subject in our discussions. Well, ladies, not only is the G8 talking about global currency, but the United Nations are also proposing a new global currency. I'd like you to watch another video from Fox News regarding the United Nations. Please listen. How's your bank account looking these days, folks? Apparently, Americans are they're up a little bit. And they're up in large part because the stock market up about 31 points right now on the big board on a Friday. Uh, and when massive foreign trade deals are made, they are done in U.S. dollars, which serves as the world's reserve currency. Now the U.N. is backing a plan to change all of that and create a new global currency. If that's the case, what does it mean for you? David Lee Miller is live in New York. David Lee, good morning to you. How serious is this idea? Right now, it is not very serious, but it still poses a threat to the U.S. This, of course, is uh, what we're talking about, the U.S. dollar. And who doesn't love the U.S. dollar? Well, as you point out, apparently uh, some economists at the United Nations, they issued a recent report at the U.N. Conference of Trade and Development just a few days ago. And that report said that part of the world's recent financial crisis is to be blamed on trade imbalances as well as the current system of currency and capital rules. But like it or not, Bill, the dollar remains the most popular currency in the world. It is the standard by which all other currencies are judged. When you trade commodities anywhere in the world, what do they use? They use the U.S. dollar. Beyond that, just about every country has reserves on, in the event of a, a rainy day, and those reserves are U.S. dollars. Why U.S. dollars? Because they are seen as the most stable. But critics point out that developing countries that have dollars are essentially giving the U.S. an interest-free loan. And now, if the U.N. were to get its way, that would be not only a blow to U.S. prestige, but it could also cause problems with the economy if trillions and trillions of dollars theoretically were to be poured into the world economy. Niall Gardner of the Heritage Foundation points out that the U.N. with this report is essentially just taking another swipe at the United States. Here's what he had to say. This is certainly a direct assault by the United Nations on American global power. This is certainly an effort, I believe, to try and undermine the dollar as a global currency. And the United Nations does have a long track record of anti-Americanism. This is just the latest example of the UN taking a swipe against the United States. And one other very quick concern, the chorus against the dollar could grow if, as some critics say, the Obama administration continues to increase the U.S. deficit. But if there is going to be any change, Bill, it could be years or even decades away. Right. David Lee, thanks. David Lee Miller, live here. Now, this video was done in 2009. And our dollar, ladies, has become a lot weaker. And now we see analysts saying it could actually happen even sooner. Whereas he was saying in the video that it could take many years, now that time frame has been cut down. There is a lot of talk about global currency. In fact, the U.S. and Europe actually rejected Chinese bid for a new global currency. In the New York Times, it shows that China is urging new money reserve to replace the dollar. Not only are they talking about a global currency, but MSNBC also is talking about implanting microchips by 2017. 
Please watch this video regarding the coalition between the United States, Canada, and Mexico, and also the RFID chip. Please listen. In 2005, an arrangement between Canada, Mexico, and the United States was made. This arrangement, unannounced to the public, unregulated by Congress, merges the United States, Mexico, and Canada into one entity, erasing all borders. It's called the North American Union. You might want to ask yourself why you've never heard of this. In fact, there is only one mainstream reporter who has actually heard of and has had the courage to cover this issue. The Bush administration's open borders policy and its uh, decision to ignore the enforcement of this country's immigration laws is part of a broader agenda. President Bush signed a formal agreement that will end the United States as we know it. And he took the step without approval from either the U.S. Congress or the people of the United States. It's a deal that few have even heard of. It's being done again by very few people at the very top on behalf of the investment class, but the working class of people, uh, political officials across our country from communities, uh, from cities and so forth, they don't know anything about this. This isn't some trade agreement. It is a total removal of sovereignty from these countries, which will also result in a completely new currency called the Amero. Um, apart from that, I think one thing people who are dollar-based need to focus on is the Amero. That's the one thing that nobody's talking about that I think is going to have a big impact on, uh, on everybody's life in Canada, the U.S., and uh, Mexico. The Amero is the proposed new currency for the North American community, which is being uh, developed right now between Canada, the U.S., and Mexico to make a borderless community much like the EU, and uh, the dollar, Canadian dollar, U.S. dollar, and the Mexican peso replaced by the Amero. By default of this agreement, the American Constitution will eventually be obsolete. You would think that a situation like this would be on the cover of every major newspaper. That is until you realize that the people who are behind this movement are the same people behind the mainstream media, and you are not told what you're not supposed to know. The North American Union is the same concept as the European Union, the African Union, and the soon-to-be Asian Union, and the same people are behind all of them. And when the time is right, the North American Union, the European Union, the African Union, and the Asian Union will be merged together, forming the final stages of a plan these men have been working on for over 60 years, a one-world government. That's right, microchips. In 2005, Congress, under the pretense of immigration control and the so-called war on terrorism, passed the Real Idea, under which it is projected by May 2008, you will be required to carry around a federal identification card, which includes on it a scannable barcode with your personal information. However, this barcode is only an intermediary step before the card is equipped with a very chip RFID tracking module, which will use radio frequencies to track your every move on the planet. If this sounds foreign to you, please note that the RFID tracking chip is already in all new American passports. And the final step is the implanted chip, which many people have already been manipulated into accepting under different pretenses. We have a Florida family who are really pioneers in a brave new world. They have volunteered to be the first ever to have microchip identification devices implanted into their bodies. After 9-11, I was really concerned um, with the security of my family. I wouldn't mind having something planted permanently in my arm that would identify me. In the end, everybody will be locked into a monitored control grid where every single action you perform is documented. And if you get out of line, 
they can just turn off your chip. For at that point in time, every single aspect of society will revolve around interactions with the chips. This is the picture that is painted for the future if you open your eyes to see it. A centralized one-world economy where everyone's moves and everyone's transactions are tracked and monitored, all rights removed. The most incredible aspect of all. These totalitarian elements will not be forced upon the people. The people will demand them. Ladies, the RFID tracking chip is here. When my husband and I went to Israel and Greece in 2008, we had to get new passports. And in those passports are the RFID chip. We had to purchase, actually, special cases to carry them in so that people could not get our personal information from our passports electronically. It was like a special material that blocked out unauthorized use of people getting our information through electronic devices. You know, it's kind of like a radio frequency is what they consider it RF. It's a radio frequency ID. And the technology, ladies, is out there. Think about it. They microchip animals, right? They want to microchip children in Alzheimer patients under the guise as if they were abducted or lost. Ladies, they can track everywhere you move with this RFID chip. Well, you also saw in the video um, about North American Union, where the United States, Canada, and Mexico join forces with no borders and show a common currency, the Amero. In 2005, President Bush, Mexico, and Canada made a proposal that would possibly be in effect in 2010. Well, ladies, there is actually a new Amero coin that was made in 2008. And President Obama is looking into this option, but it has not gone into effect yet, and we don't know if it will. But it's interesting. It's out there, isn't it? Things that we don't even know about. Now, this is similar to the EU, where you have the European countries joining together, right? Um, you even have the United Nations that have been around since 1945. So this would be just another part of them uniting countries together. Ladies, a global economy depends on the enforcement, ultimately, of a one-world government. So you can see how, as each of these countries develop unions with each other, will ultimately all come together to join as one world government. These are all talks that are going on in our lifetime and very recently. We see in the headlines of how Russia and Iran are joining together strategically. Iran's Ahmadinejad deepens ties with Venezuela with Hugo Chavez, right? And just the other day, Ahmadinejad was visiting Lebanon. Turkey, who was an ally to Israel, now grows closer to Iran. The European Union calls for a new world government. Britain's Prime Minister Gordon Brown has been talking about the elite's plan for a one-world totalitarian socialist state. And, of course, Henry Kissinger, we know, is a very strong advocate for the New World Government. And then you have the Shanghai Corporation Organization, also known as the SCO. Now, briefly, 
the Shanghai Corporation Organization is an intergovernmental mutual security organization which was founded in 2001 in Shanghai. It was originally known as the Shanghai Five, which was founded in 1996, but now they have added others on to it. They were to unify signatories on economic, social, and political platforms. However, the SCO is often a proxy to advance Chinese and Russian interests. Now, Central Asia is a rising regional security concern, and Chinese and Russian actions are cultivated robust political ties. So, we see that the SCO policies and agendas frequently are clashing with those of the United States, creating an adversarial and potentially hostile U.S.-SCO relationship. Well, ladies, I want you to listen now to Dr. Heinzen again from the King is Coming Ministries in regards to globalization and the one world government. Please listen. A global economy depends on the enforcement, ultimately, of a world government. You see, the idea of a world superstate empowered by a global economy is already a reality today. Whether it takes 10 years or 100 years for it to finally control the entire world, it's already beginning to emerge. 20 years ago, people talked about the fact that one day there would be a global economy. Today, that global economy is a reality. Oh, at times it's unstable. At times it has difficulties and challenges, but globalists continue to promote the idea of transnational corporations, universal credit systems, a world currency controlled by a world bank. All of these things remind us of Bible predictions about the fact that one day the Antichrist will control the global economy. We are running a headlong down the road to destiny with all of this on the horizon of the future. One of the leaders of the Dutch recently said, we have passed the point of no return. Uh, the Germans have said the idea of individual nations is an idea relegated to the past. We need to strengthen the United Nations, they said. Europe needs to become the moving factor economically, politically, and even militarily to unify, to secure international peace and cooperation and to control the prosperity of the future and to promote economic and social rights under the attitude and idea of civil rights. Can there be any doubt that a new world order is already emerging? It is a reality of our times. Now, in the rise and fall of political influences, various leaders may come to power at one time or another. The scripture makes it, I think, very clear that the ultimate world leader, the Antichrist himself, will not come to power until after the rapture, after the restrainer is removed and the church is raptured to heaven. But the very fact that we can look at our world today and see that the idea of a global economy, a world government, and even ultimately the attitude of the toleration of a world religion is becoming more and more the mindset of the times. It's what the Germans called years ago the zeitgeist, how you view the times in which you live. The mindset of this time, the zeitgeist of our time, is so pervasive that everybody is thinking that way, society is moving that way, certainly the media is promoting all of this, and ultimately 
there will be a global world order. Now, we can resist at times. We can vote in another direction at times. We can use our free democratic rights to stand up for what we believe. But mark it down, it's ultimately going to happen. Now, the economic part of it feeds your wallet. And so people say, well, what's wrong with that? Let's have prosperity. That'll be good for me. But as you give up your individual rights, as you give up your national sovereignty in order to gain those things, eventually you're under the control of a system that has no place for God, no place for the Bible, no place for biblical morality. In fact, the tragedy about the new Europe is that in the Constitution of the European Union, there is no mention of religion at all or God at all. God has been pushed out of the scene completely and entirely. It's the attitude that we can run the world by ourselves with our own ability, with our own intelligence, with our own power, with our own influence. And when man is ultimately in charge, the kingdom of man will be centered on man's desires and on self-promotion of our interests. And eventually, God is forgotten. The things of God are forgotten. The principles of God, the morality of God, the very purpose of God for mankind is then eliminated from society. It's no different than you had way back in the book of Genesis at the Tower of Babel uh, when the people of ancient Babylon determined that we'll build a ziggurat, the tower that leads to heaven itself. We'll work our way to heaven. We'll build the great society and we can do it without the God of the Bible. And the judgment of God fell on that society. The judgment of God scattered those people across the earth. And for 6,000 years, people have been attempting to pull back together uh, everything that went wrong at the Tower of Babel. Let me remind you uh, that one of the symbols of the New Europe is a picture of the Tower of Babel uh, with the idea that while there are many languages in Europe, there is only one voice, and that one voice is the voice of globalism. That is the direction in which society is headed, and even the leader of Belgium has said what we ultimately need is a world leader that can bring us out of the confusion of our times, and be he God or the devil, we will follow such a leader. That sets the stage for what the Bible predicts about the future. Ladies, the time is being set, isn't it? Remember the first attempt to globalization was at the Tower of Babel where they tried to unite everyone and reach heaven by their own power. Well, did you know that the EU has patterned their parliament building after the drawing of the Tower of Babel? And the leader of Belgium has said, what we ultimately need is a world leader that can bring us out of the confusion of our times and be he God or the devil we will follow such a leader. And then remember, Paul Warburg, who is the Council of Foreign Relations and Architect of the Federal System, said in address to the Senate in 1950, he said, We shall have world government whether or not we like it. The only question is whether world government will be achieved by conquest or consent. Ladies, the time is being set. We need to be ready. We need to be eagerly watching for Christ's return. I have enjoyed studying God's Word with you. 
And instead of being fearful, ladies, because of what we hear in the signs of our times, I pray that it will stir in our hearts to be eagerly watching for Christ's return. Until next week, God bless.